I, uh, some of you have been asking me as time has gone on, you know, how uh, you guys doing with the transition, and you know, we're, we're doing just fine, a little hot, but other than that, we're doing just fine, and, uh, and you know, it's, it has been a big transition for myself and my family, but we feel like the Lord has given us incredible grace and a, and a really good start with all of you. Uh, probably one of the, the biggest things, and it's really a small thing that I'm still getting used to, is just um, being a bit more under a microscope here than I was back in Cleveland, and that's just because of the size difference. You know, it's a, it's a huge church here, probably four times the size of where I came from in Cleveland, and though it was a large church for Cleveland standards, uh, not comparative to this, and so I'm, um, I'm getting more emails here of a bit more petty nature. Do I need to say any more than that? And, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and, it, and, and I'm rolling with it and all that, and, and the funny thing was is that... Um, you know, I'm getting emails even on my dress, which I never got back in Cleveland. And, and one of the most cool things, I thought, was uh, how in the summer here, you all kind of dress down a little bit more. And I've, like, fallen in love with those shirts that you don't have to tuck in, like some of you have on right now. Like, those are so comfortable. And so, I've, if you notice, I bought, like, eight of them, and I've been wearing them all summer. And uh, last week was Communion Sunday, and my wife, kid you not, she dresses me for Sunday morning, and so she dressed me in, if you might remember, in um, more formal slacks and a tuck-in shirt. And she got so many comments from some of you on how better I looked. She dressed me like this today. And I'm not kidding. And I'm so bummed, you know. I'm, and so I, got, I put these pants on that she bought me this week and this shirt, and I said, Kim, I feel uncomfortable. She said, you look good. Go. You know, and... So gone now are going to be those fun shirts on Sunday morning. So what you need to do is tell her that I look like a dork today and that, um, and that you really like those, those shirts that you don't have to tuck in. So anyways, uh, I'll let you guys handle that. And, uh, no, and you know what I always say? If that's my biggest problem today, I'm blessed. Amen? And so uh, we're all blessed. Well, let's do this. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the Word because we've got some fun stuff to talk about this morning. God, we uh, thank you for the worship that we've had up to this point. It set us up, hopefully, uh, to focus our minds and soften our hearts toward what you might say to us in your word. So as we continue in this study out of 1 Peter and tackle this incredibly important topic of holiness this morning, I pray, God, that you would uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we understand rightly what you have recorded for us in your word and may we not be afraid to apply it diligently and faithfully to our lives. So thank you for our time together here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, so I want you to picture a couple that has received a letter from a concerned Christian friend outlining their son's not-so-Christian behavior. Imagine that happening. And they're reviewing this letter, this couple is, at a local coffee shop, and they're talking through what they are reading. And I want you to join them right now in their discussion, and let's see what happens. Look up here on the screen. All right, number one. Seems our son has been driving around town listening to inappropriate music. You know what? I'm in trouble, too. You're in trouble, then. <laughs> no, seriously, honey. Do you have a conviction from the Lord that our son is listening to music he shouldn't be? No, I don't. Coldplay? You too, um, Johnny Cash, Dave Matthews? No, some of the songs, of course. But I had his iPod at the gym the other day, and, you know, he's fine. He knows when he's crossed the line, and uh, I trust him. Right. Let me rephrase that. I trust the Holy Spirit to convict right. him. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I think our friends are more concerned with style than content. What's next? Is there a number two? Okay. Oh, here they're talking about the tattoo. Is he bragging about getting a tattoo? No, no, no. It's nothing like that. You know, he's excited, honey. He's talking to his friends, getting advice, talking about what to get and where to put it. Does he know what he's getting yet? Yes, he's, he's talking about imuna or something like that. It's the Hebrew word for faith <laughs> on his forearm or the Archangel Michael holding a sword on his left shoulder. You know, people need to pick and choose their battles and so far we've got nothing here. So, wow. um, number three, it seems the Christmas break incident is still an issue. Oh, you know, he repented of TPing the house and, and he repented for getting drunk and blaming it on food poisoning at Taco Bell. He repented of being a bad example to his sisters and his brothers. In fact, he even repented to his buddies who got drunk with him right. for not standing firm, sharpening iron. In fact, honey, he even brought it up to me the other day. He was talking about how he could really see God's hand of grace in his life. In fact, he talks about it openly now as part of his testimony. This event really shaped who he's becoming for the Lord. I, End of story. I am so proud of him. So am I. We really are blessed. I love that boy. Um, I think our friends are getting a little holier than thou. I'm going to call Tom in the morning and I'll talk to him. Okay. Want some dessert? Oh, yes. I want that sinfully delicious chocolatey hot fudge bread. I love that line toward the end, not the chocolate one, the one where, uh, where, where he says, I think our friends are getting a little more holier than thou. Let's see, hand raise. Have you ever had friends like that in your life? I think a lot of us have. Or, or maybe even more to the point, have you ever been a friend like that to somebody? I, I know I have. I know in all the ups and downs of my Christian faith over the last 25, 30 years, there have been plenty of times where I have been very judgmental, very harsh in my demeanor and my approach to, to other people in my own holiness. And so here's the deal. We, we've learned, most of us have, that, that judgmentalism and finger pointing and having a condescending attitude is never a good way to approach moral or relational issues, whether our own or somebody else's, Right? And yet at the same time, let's be fair, I think we'd all agree that values and morals matter, that for us as Christians, holiness matters. And so the question that I want you and I to wrestle with for our entire time, rest of our time here this morning, is simply this. How do we understand and apply this idea of holiness that is we're going to see God calls us to without becoming more holier than thou? Do you know the issue? In other words, how do we live a set-apart and holy life that we're going to see God calls us to without having this judgmental, condescending, finger-pointing mindset and attitude that, quite frankly, many, if not some Christians, seem to be known for? And that's the topic that Peter places before us today, this idea of holiness and how to live it. That's what I want us to explore. And I think you're going to find some freedom as we move along this morning. So as we dive into this, what I need you to do, if you brought a Bible, is I need you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing on in our series here called The People of God. And I want to read for you, beginning at verse 13 and up through verse 21, the passage before us today. And see if you can pick up 
on what Peter, and then also God through Peter, is saying to us about this idea of holiness. 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so at the very least, folks, I think we can safely say that this idea of holiness is like a big deal to God. Amen? Like he couldn't be more clear here. And so let's all own and get on the same page as to the main point in the passage here. Look up on the screen and it's this. And that is that we are called to a life of holiness patterned after God himself. I think that's the big picture the bird's eye view of what Peter is saying here. We, you and I, as the church and individually, are called to a life of holiness patterned after God himself. And so looking at verses 15 to 16, you can see Peter making his case here along two lines, that of reason and revelation. He appeals to reason and revelation in making this clear to us. He says in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. It's simply the logic of reason. This only makes sense. God made us in his image. He saved us by sending us Jesus Christ. And now Peter says, based on this calling and based on the fact that God is holy and that we're going to want to be like him as much as possible, then we should be holy as well. It's just pure common sense that he's resorting to here. Kind of like a kid wants to emulate the good things that he or she sees in mom and dad. He's saying that you're going to want to emulate who God is in all of your behavior, and this thing called holiness is like right at the top of the list. And then, as if, and then if reason is not enough, Peter goes on to add an additional element to his argument. He appeals to revelation, the fact that God has told us in his word to be holy. Look at verse 16. He says, but since it is written, and then he goes on to quote the Old Testament, Leviticus 11.44, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he's saying that if logic doesn't grab you, then realize that God has commanded us in his word to be holy. And the passage that he uses there from the Old Testament is like really straightforward. Be holy. You should be holy because I am holy. So you got reason. You got revelation. Two clearly inarguable rationales as to why we should want to be holy in our lives and why we should be holy in our lives. We're called to a life of holiness, patterned after God himself. And if you're like me at all, at this point in our look here, you say, got it, right? I mean, like, who is going to argue with the fact that we should be holy as God is, especially as Christians, right? I mean, that's like a big duh. Of course, we should all be holy in our lives. And admitting this, owning this, gets none of us in trouble. But listen, what does get us in trouble is when we then go on to define holiness and attempt to be holy. But what messes up many of our Christian lives is not the call or the desire to be holy. Everybody agrees with this. But when we get, what we get just turned around and off base 
is in our understanding of precisely what holiness is and then our attempts to live it out, right? I mean, that's what makes people come across as judgmental. Or that's what makes some people come across as licentious, not even seeming to care about holiness. The reality that we all understand we should be this way, but we don't agree on what it is and how it applies to our lives. And thankfully, this is precisely what Peter goes on to do in our text here, to tell us what holiness is and how to live it out. In fact, contained in all of this lofty theological language he uses in his description of holiness here is what I have found to be a very workable and freeing definition of holiness. And so let me give it to you right now, and then we're going to unpack it. And here it is. And that is that holiness is the act of becoming increasingly like God, now get this, relationally as well as ethically. That's holiness. It's the act of becoming increasingly like God, but here is the life-giving part, relationally and, and ethically. And so holiness, far from being some just simply some moral issue, though it is that, is first and foremost a relational activity that then expresses itself in ethical actions. And I would submit to you that once you get this today, it could and should be revolutionary for your Christian life, especially in the way that many of us have seen holiness up to this point. Look at our text here this morning and see if you can pick up what this ethical relational thing is about. First, notice that Peter is obviously communicating the ethical components of holiness to us in verses 13 to 17 here. He begins by saying, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. And that phrase, preparing your minds for action, is translated in a very interesting way in the King James Version, but in a way that quite frankly is dead on with the original meaning of this phrase when it was written in the original Greek language in the New Testament. The King James Version translates this passage here, gird up the loins of your mind. Sounds like the King James, doesn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. And some of you are saying, what's that about? Uh, This phrase is actually borrowed from a a, a a picture of the running world in the first century in which when a Greek or Jewish person had to run, there was only one significant problem and it was their tunic, right? So I put pictures of somebody in a tunic up there. So think about it. If a, if a guy especially had to run back in the Greek and Jewish world, and they had to run in any manly way, how do you do it when you have a tunic on, right? It's going to get in the way, and you're going to look kind of stupid or foolish trying to run with a tunic. So what they did back then is that whenever anybody had to run with their tunic on, they would pull their tunic up, and they had undergarments on, mind you, so they pull their tunics up, and they would tuck them in their belt. This was known as girding up your tunic, girding up your loins, tucking it in your belt, and in this way now they were free to run, not encumbered anymore. And what Peter is doing in his language here is he's bouncing off this mental word picture that they were all familiar with and applying it to our minds, saying, gird up the loins of your minds. You got work to do. You need to be free from encumbrance. So tuck in your thoughts and prepare yourself for action. That's what he's saying. And when he adds that phrase, be sober-minded here, that simply means to be alert with no mental distractions, sober, not drunk, in the way that you think. Basically saying the same thing. And when you get this, the question you should be asking is, well, why does God want us to be so mentally prepared for action? I mean, what is he about to say that is so important that we need to get ready to do something. 
And here's the answer. Three phrases that verses 14 to 17 tell us that Peter goes on to say that now you're going to get with more clarity. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, the passions that you used to have. He says in verse 15, be holy in all of your conduct. And then in verse 70, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Don't miss this, folks. Three phrases that are all talking about our behavior that are all talking about our actions and calling us to have an ethical behavior and a level of moral action that is a cut above the world around us. And this is what most of us think of when we think of holiness. And it's true. I mean, when Peter uses this word conduct here twice, it is very pointedly talking about our behaviors, what we do, our lifestyle. That's what he's after here. And there's no getting around this. Holiness, by its very nature, is an ethical and a moral entity. It involves our behavior. It's becoming like God in our moral actions. I mean, even the word holy, as many of you know itself, means to be set apart. Set apart from what? Well, all the moral garbage of this world. And set apart to the moral beauty of who God is and what he wants our lives to reflect. That's what Peter's communicating here. And this is what most of us over the years have heard about holiness, that it's a highly moral, highly ethical thing, right? Give me a head nod that tells me you're with me on this. So, if you have seen holiness up to this point in your life as a moral and ethical thing, here's the deal. You are half correct. You are 50% there. Problem is, is that many of us think we're 100% there, and you're going to see you're not. Because contained... In the wording that Peter gives here, in the midst of all of this talking about preparing for action and being obedient and conduct and be holy, you don't want to miss the additional language that he uses here as well. Language that likewise surrounds this idea of holiness. Look at here what I mean. Look at verse 13 again. After he talks about girding up the loins of your minds and being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully, I get this, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace Jesus Christ, he's my Savior, he's my friend, he's full of grace and truth. He's using relational terms. And then look at verse 14. It says, as obedient children. Fascinating, children. Not slaves, not servants, not kingdom workers, or all the other words and concepts Peter could have used, but children. Relational terms. And then look at verse 17, the same verse that talks about our conduct and fear as we live out our holiness. It begins by saying, and if you call on him as father. Call on him as father. What an endearing and intimate phrase. That word call here literally means to call for help. It pictures somebody who, who tenderly in a time of need calls on somebody, in this case God, who knows that his heart is tender toward you and wants to help and is going to help. It's a relational phrase. Again, relational terms. I mean, add it all up. Grace, Jesus Christ, children, father, all in the context of talking about holiness are you starting to get the picture? Holiness is not just an ethical thing. It's also a relational thing. And he's bending over backwards to help us see this. Some of you are thinking right now, well, come on, Jamie, I mean, the Old Testament's filled with holiness and it's kind of harsh stuff. Well, well, yeah, but the Old Testament also affirms this idea of relationality in the midst of holiness, ethical stuff. Look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. This is powerful. God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not man. Now listen. 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So he's talking about tenderness, compassion in the midst of holiness. That's what Peter is getting at here as well. God's holiness, yes, it is a behavioral and ethical thing, no getting around this, we're set apart. But before Peter gets too far in describing any of these ethical or moral qualities, he first backs up and he throws in life-giving relational terms as well. Please don't miss this. It is so key to understanding holiness. Look up here on the screen again. Preparing minds for action, being sober-minded, but setting your hope fully on the grace that's in Jesus Christ, your Savior, your friend. Obedience and not conforming to your former passions, but don't forget you're the children of God. Right conduct and fear as exiles, but you call on him as father. In other words, Peter never talks about the ethical side here without also talking about the relational side. Do you see that? And folks, I think there's something to this. I think this is life-changing. I think that Peter is trying to tell us that when it comes to God's holiness and our patterned holiness after him, that it's not just some outward behavioral do-oriented thing, as so many Christians seem to make it, but that it is first and foremost an inward, heart-focused, highly relational activity. And so holiness becomes something that models God not just in the outward externals, but also in the inward character traits of things like love and justice and kindness and gentleness, that our holiness is also relational in nature and, as we're going to see, springboards from relationality. And without this, you don't understand holiness. Without both the relational as well as the ethical side, you are lopsided and stunted in your understanding and application of what it means to be holy like God. I want to write this up for you on the board just so that we're all crystal clear on this because I find this has been a very life-giving thing for me over the years. Um, basically what I think Peter is saying, and what I'm trying to affirm here, is that when you start to see this thing like holiness here, and, and you see it, save for the sake of argument, as moral behavior only, which is how many Christians seem to see it. Holiness is just adopting your lifestyle and having better moral behavior. Then what I have found it leads to, and tell me if this, this isn't true, is lifeless legalism. Have you been there? It leads to lifeless legalism. In other words, when I first got saved, became a Christian almost 25, 30 years ago, um, I, I came out of a very decadent background, as I've told some of you, and, and, I, and I very quickly changed my lifestyle. I mean, I went from, from chewing to not chewing. <laughs> I went from drinking to not drinking, from swearing to not swearing, from chasing girls to not chasing girls. I went from a very rebellious lifestyle to within literally days of just changing my attitude and my actions toward God. And I very quickly fell into a mindset, like some of you did, that holiness, this idea of being holy, is purely an ethical thing. I mean, yeah, I had my quiet time and all this, but, but I was more interested in changing my lifestyle than I was just relating to God. And Christianity very quickly became for me an outward ethical type of thing only. And you know what I became? I became a legalistic, judgmental little cuss. I really did. I mean, people didn't like me. When they saw me coming, they started to walk the other way. This is a true story. I was in a fraternity in college at that time, and bless their hearts, they one day just finally locked me in a room. They literally locked me in a room, and they wouldn't let me out. 
And I'm banging on the door saying, let me out. What are you guys doing? They're saying, we're not going to let you out until you shut up about our lives. All you're telling us is how sinful we are and how bad we are and how we need to repent and get right with God. And I'm like, well, it's the truth. You know, and I'm just like bantering back and forth. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Why? Holiness for me was moral behavior only. And it led to legalism. And I got to tell you, my, my soul wasn't very happy either. But then there's the flip side of this. And some of us have been here as well. And that's that then there's the pendulum that swings. And holiness then becomes a relational only thing. And, and you know what I find that that leads to? This is just as bad. Is that leads to what I call lapsed morality. And there are many Christians there today right now. In other words, what happens then is that we kind of let the pendulum swing and we go, you know, I'm not going to be a legalist anymore. I'm tired of seeing holiness as this ethical thing. That's just legalism. I'm just going to relate to God as a God of love, you know, and I'm just going to relate to him and have my quiet time and, you know, go to any movie I want to and do whatever I want. And it really doesn't matter and all this other stuff. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're kind of relating to God in a buddy sort of way, but you forget that maybe there's an ethical call on your life. And you mark my words, you notice, and you'll start to see yourself slip in certain areas that, that initially when you first became a Christian or were raised in the church, you never thought you'd slip in those areas. I've been through that too. You're going to be very glad that I'm now a balanced pastor, but I've, I've, I've been through that too. And I remember driving down the road about 13 years ago. My middle daughter now is 16, and we were living in Detroit. And I was driving down the road, and I'd spent all my early years being a legalist, and now I was not going to be a legalist. I was going to relate to God as my buddy and, and all this other stuff and be holy relationally. And, and we're driving down the road, and Abby's just three years old, and Kim's in the front seat, Abby's in the back, in a little car seat, and somebody cut me off on the road. And I kid you not, from the back seat, I hear this little voice as she sees this car cut me off say, moron. And I go, where did she get that word from? And before I could say that, Kim looks at me and goes, I did not teach her that word. She goes, you taught her that word, and that's benign compared to the other words that she's starting to learn. And I was aghast. I said, you're kidding me. I said, I, I didn't even realize it. You been there? I'm slipping. I, I mean, I, I thought, even as a pastor, I'm starting to use words and language that I didn't use when I first got saved. And I looked at other aspects of my behavior, and I was starting to do things that I didn't do when I first got saved. And, and yeah, i got to chill out on the legalism, but at the same time, if I'm not careful, that pendulum's, pendulum's going to swing. There are a lot of Christians there today. And I think what Peter is saying here, and this has been very life-giving to me over the years, folks, is that when you kind of just repent of these two things and start to see holiness for what it is, which is a highly relational, both, relational and ethical entity, then what happens is, and this is what's happened for me, is that it results in a life-giving, head-turning, you're going to like this, righteousness. That's what holiness becomes. I'm spelling it all wrong, but you get the message. There's an E there. That, uh, that it becomes a life-giving, head-turning righteousness. That's what happens when holiness becomes both relational as well as ethical for you. Go back to that video that we saw earlier. Can you imagine what happened if that, that friend who had concerns about the, that people's son, instead of writing an email or a letter with lists in it, what if they had just taken that parents out and said, you know what, we got a couple concerns about your kid. You know, we just we like to talk to you about it. And they might be nothing, you know, because they might not be big issues at all. But we just thought we'd, we'd talk to you about these because we're your friends and we love you. Do you think that might have worked? 
I think so. I mean, is it wrong to, to talk to each other about our kids' behaviors? Well, in today's world, like, don't tell me how to parent little Johnny and Susie. I mean, it's like the impardonable sin. But the reality is, is that we should start to say some of those things to each other. But do so in the context of relationality and not judgment, of concern and care. Do you see how this works? And all I know is that I have found over the years is that as I add relationality and ethics to my holiness, combined together in a beautiful way, heads turn. People go, I want what he wants. And I'm not threatened by what he wants because I know he loves me and he cares for me and he relates to me and he seems to love God. Do you see how that works? If you don't hear anything else this morning, folks, hear this, holiness, this idea of becoming like God is a highly relational activity that then manifests itself in changed behavior. And one without the other is going to make you very lopsided when it comes to your walk with God, the side of heaven. And so once you understand this, the main questions then become, well, how does this work? I mean, how do we actually become like God relationally and behaviorally? And isn't it wonderful? Peter tells us. And here's what I believe he says in our passage before us this morning. Look up here on the screen. This is our last point. And that is that we live a life of holiness by responding to God's actions and commands in the past. We'll explain that in a minute. But then looking forward to his movement in the future. And though this sounds so incredibly vanilla, I looked at that this week and I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a real scintillating statement. It is. It's incredibly life-giving. So let me explain what this is about. And, and to do so, I want you to look at how Peter wraps up this section here in verses 18 to 21. Listen to what he says. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, your, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. I would submit to you that you're not going to find a more succinct and clear and wonderful description of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I than 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21. I mean, it is incredibly life-changing. And I love that phrase, ransomed from the futile ways. Now, that word ransom literally means to be free, free from oppression through a payment. It's a word that was used back then just like it is today. Somebody gets kidnapped, or you have somebody held in slavery, and another person comes along and pays a ransom, and that person is now free. And by analogy, Peter is simply saying that all of us who are honest with ourselves have felt the oppression of our souls. Can you own that? Being held captive by our fallen nature, stuck in our sinful tendencies, and not able to do anything about it. And what is it that ransomed us then? What is it that set us so free that we can now relate to God in personal relationship and faith? Not something silly like money or gold or silver, but the precious blood of Christ. His cross, his death, his resurrection, him paying the penalty that our sin deserved, he paid the ransom so that we could be brought to God. And who is this Jesus that has any ability or authority to do this? Peter tells us this as well. He says only God incarnate, God in the flesh who was known before the foundation of the world, preexistent before all time. <laughs> That's who. And what's the result of this? I love it. Look at verse 21. He says your faith and your hope are now in God. In other words, let this sink in, folks. If God had not done 
all that he has for you and for I in sending Christ and ransoming us back from a kidnapped world and our own fallen nature, then you would not know God in any meaningful way. You wouldn't. You would not be in here in church today worshiping him. Your small group would be lifeless. Service would be a drag. You'd read the Bible and get nothing out of it. You'd pray and hear nothing back. I mean, all the things that you and I take for granted in our Christian life wouldn't be there if Christ had not ransomed us back, if he had not come. And so what Peter is saying is that your core motivation then to live out this relational and ethical holiness that God has called you to is to be in grateful response to all that he has done to save your pathetic soul and bring you to himself. He's simply saying that you're to wake up every day and if possible have your first thought be, I'm saved. He has caused me to be born anew in his kingdom. He ransomed me back from being dead in my trespasses and sins. And because of that, thank you, God. I want to walk with you today. I want to talk to you. I want to live for you. Peter's saying allow that to motivate you. Look back on what has happened and allow that to be your core motivation and your holiness and how you love others and how you live this side of heaven. And as if this were not enough, then he gives us another thing, however, this to become a driving force in our attempts to live a holy life. Look at verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not to look just backwards at what Christ has done for us in our pathway toward holiness, but he says also look forward to what's going to happen when you see him face to face. So we're to be motivated by the goal that someday we're going to be with Christ in person, and when we do, we hope to get one of those, like, well done, good and faithful servant comments, right? And he says that looking forward to that, longing for that, allow that goal to also drive you in your holiness. I love how I. Howard Marshall says it in his very practical commentary on this passage. He says, more and greater blessings are in store for Christians than we at present enjoy. And one of the incentives for Christian living should be our sense of anticipation of what God will give us at the end. And he's right. So our motivation to be holy, to be like him as we relate to others and how we behave, is not just a responsive thing, responding to what God has done, though it is that, but it's also a looking forward thing. It's looking forward to what it's going to be like when we see him and that well done, good and faithful servant. And so look up here on the screen. Give me another click here, guys. This is how it works. For you to live right in the present in a way that your understanding and living holiness, two things are required. Responding to the past, looking forward to your time with Christ in heaven or when he comes back, whichever comes first. That's what the Bible is saying here. It's saying that as you look back in grateful praise for what God has done for you, thanking him for that, and then looking forward to your time with him in eternity, that's enough to cause you to have a holy flow in the present. And the, magic, or the beauty of this is awesome. And that is simply this, that when you're doing that, when you're looking back and thanking God for what he has done, and when you're looking forward anticipating seeing him face to face, what are you doing in those two activities? You're relating to him. Amen? You're reading his word. You're praying. You're loving other people. Your sights, your focus are set on him. And so by very nature, you're not living some obligatory, duty-filled life of waking up and saying, I better be righteous today. You're not thinking like that. What you're thinking like is you're waking up and saying, thank you for saving my soul. Can't wait to see you in heaven. And out of that's going to flow what it really means to be holy. Because you relate to God like that. You love him like that. And I promise you, that behavioral component and that relational component going to flow. 
You're going to be more patient. You're going to be more kind. You're going to be more tender. You're going to be more righteous as you focus on God and all he has done for you and the longing to see him face to face. That's what Peter's saying here. Uh, as we wrap up here and get down to the short strokes, I want to ask you to do one last thing with me this morning. And maybe this will really help bring it home for some of you. Now, right where you sit right now, I want you each to do something for me. I want you to think of the most holy person that you have known. Now, now let me be very clear what I mean by that. The most holy person you have known. So I'm not talking about like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, because you've never met them, most likely. So I'm not talking about the most holy person you know of, but think of the most holy person that has impacted your life. Some people came up to me in the last service and said, Grandma. Others said, Mom or Dad. Others said, my spouse. Wow. Others said, you know, a good friend at work. And, and so think of the most holy person you know. And then I want you to ask yourself, what makes them so stinking holy? All right? Ask that question. In other words, what makes them so holy? Why are they the way they are? I'll bet you dimes to dollars in every one of these scenarios here that what makes that person so holy that has impacted your life it's the fact that they have loved you in an unconditional, Christ-like way. In other words, there's a level of relationality that has impacted your life, but they've also been an example of what it means to live a lifestyle commensurate with knowing Christ. Am I right? In other words, it's relationality and it's morality that you admire in them that surrounds their faith, that surrounds what it means to be a Christian. About 50 years ago, there was a guy born in Detroit into a typical American family in a suburb of Detroit by the name of Joe. And uh, Joe was born in a large Catholic family, won a scholarship to the University of Michigan, became a track star there and majored in journalism. And his life was all set for him. I mean, his family and his friends had just great hopes that Joe was going to go on to be a, a kind of a moving force in the sports world. And at the end of his stay at the University of Michigan, something happened, however, and that's that somebody explained to him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he accepted the Lord as his, as his Savior and Lord. He accepted Christ into his life. And it was kind of a profound thing because he had been raised in a tradition where he never really was introduced to a personal relationship with Christ. And so this revolutionized his life. And so as he graduated from the U of M, he was very excited about his newfound walk with God. But pursuing a career in journalism, he went to Baldwin-Wallace College, just south of Cleveland, Ohio, and began working in their sports journalism department. And I uh, was really enjoying it for the next couple of years. But over the next couple of years, God continued to grab his heart to the point that he made a decision to do a massive career change that shocked all of his friends and family. And he decided to go on staff with an unknown youth organization, at least unknown to all of them, called Youth for Christ. And they said, what in the world are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to go up to Cleveland and I'm going to just start working with some kids on the east side of Cleveland. So Joe went on staff with this organization. It's kind of like Young Life in this area. And he began working with upper-middle-class, spoiled white kids in the suburbs of Cleveland. And he began talking to them about spiritual things. And he landed, of all places, at Chagrin Falls High School in the late 1970s, where he met some punk-nosed kid named Jamie Rasmussen. And I remember the first time, I'll put it in the first person now, that I met Joe. It was just a very unique meeting. He was in the school commons, and I kid you not, he came up to me and said, we're having a mudslide this week at Campus Life, which is like a subsidiary of Youth for Christ. We're having a mudslide. I was wondering if you wanted to go. I remember thinking to myself, I'm in sports, and I like girls. I do not want to go to a mudslide. Thank you very much. And I said, no. 
But I got to tell you, something continued to draw me to this guy. Now listen very close. What drew me to Joe in my lost condition, in not even having all that much spiritual thirst initially, what drew me to him was not his high-value ethical system, though that was a good thing that he had it. In other words, as a lost person, I was not necessarily impressed that somebody had a value system higher than me. Because you didn't have to look hard to have a value system higher than me. So I was just a given that everybody and their brother was going to be more moral and righteous than me. And as a high school kid, I had parents that were more moral than me. And that wasn't all that impressive, though later on I came to appreciate it. My dad never cheated on my wife. I never heard him raise his voice. He never swore that much. He never drank. I never saw him get drunk. I mean, my dad was a very ethical and loving man. And so ethics didn't necessarily impress me. But something drew me to Joe. What drew me to Joe? Well, listen, what drew me to Joe was the fact that he had peace, and he had purpose, and he had significance. And he also had an interest in me, and he loved me. In other words, there was a level of relationality intermingled with his holiness that was just contagious in this guy's life. And so many of you know the rest of the story. I started hanging around Joe for the next few months, never did go to a mudslide, but had cokes with him and stuff. And he eventually explained the gospel to me, and on March 11, 1981, I accepted Jesus Christ into my life as Lord and Savior. Totally changed my life. Joe went on to leave campus life. Most guys don't last too long in that. And he went on to become a pastor. And uh, he's now pastoring a church in the inner city of Cleveland. And though his church is not huge, maybe four or 500 people, Everybody who's anybody in the Cleveland Christian scene knows Joe. They do. I mean, you ask anybody in Cleveland, you ever heard of Joe Abraham? Sure, he's a pastor of Scranton Road Bible Church. Why do they know him? Because life on life, one person at a time, he has touched so many with his relational and ethical holiness, with his contagious love for God, his acceptance of people around him, his willingness to point at sin but do so in a way that doesn't make you feel judged or anything, just makes you feel like you want to get righteous and get holy with God. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you see this mixture in one person. And I would submit to you, however, that that's a call that all of us have in our lives. All of us are called to enter into this week, starting today, Monday through Saturday, with this idea of holiness being something that we get from God as we relate to him, love him, follow him, trust him, pray to him. And then as it flows in our lives, it flows in both relational and ethical ways. And as that happens, all I can say is look out. You want to rock Scottsdale? You want to rock Phoenix? You want to rock your family? You want to rock your work world? You want to rock your neighborhood? It's going to happen when Christians from Scottsdale Bible Church get what holiness is and start to live it in highly relational and highly ethical ways. One last word and we're done. In late September, we're going to do a two-week series uh, outlining a new renewed vision for our church that I've been working on with the elders and with the staff and with the council of elders. And uh, one of the things that you're going to hear is that we have a vision to see every believer from Scottsdale Bible Church known for or marked by two significant things, and that's an uncompromising faith and an unconditional love for those around them. Folks, dream with me what would happen if every one of us was known in our sphere of influence as being somebody who has uncompromising faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're not backing down, but at the same time, an unconditional love for those around us, saying, I love you. I'm not going to leave you. 
until we see you into the kingdom. Imagine, dream with me what would happen if that becomes reality here at Scottsdale Bible. I know in some of your lives it is already, but I also know we got some work to do in many of our lives as well. And you just simply know as your new pastor building on this idea of holiness, that's what we're dreaming about. And we have such great hopes for our future here in the valley. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that once again in your word, you give us life-giving, practical truth to hang on to. And Father, as we've just explored a little bit of this idea of holiness today, but hopefully seen it in its right light, I pray, God, that, that indeed as we, um, as we go out here today and live this as best we can, focusing on you, responding to the awesomeness of our salvation, looking forward to your return, that, God, you, you would just work in us the kind of holiness that is head-turning, that is life-giving, and that people are drawn to. Father, we live in a world that needs you so desperately and so badly, and things are declining just before our eyes. And I pray, God, that you might use this place and these people um, to be a beacon of hope, a beacon of light, a beacon of love, a beacon of faith in Christ to this valley. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name, and the whole church says together, amen. God bless you, and have a great day.